Radio Richard. Through the years, it seems to me that you've done so many different things, and you've done obviously for yourself, but you're also doing things which you know are going to be useful in a band situation, in a record situation, and you're you're choosing how do you choose your instruments for things like that through the years what what keyboards have have come out to you and said oh i've got to have that because it'll allow me to do x well i mean first of all my my first uh wish that i thought i you know for a for a group back in the 60s i mean i wanted a hammond desperately but couldn't afford one and couldn't carry one on my own because nobody would have volunteered to help at that time. No. Although, I mean, as the guys got to know the importance of the Hammond, then in the end, they were only too willing, you know, to help. Or by that time, actually, if I could afford one, we had roadies as well. So, yeah. But my first, uh, actually, my first uh, foray into electronic music was through my local barber in Cardiff. <laughs> The barber is a haircutter, you know. Yes, yes, and, yes. Um, he played piano in in the local. Um, I don't know whether it was a conservative club or something. It was a local club. Um, we had to have private clubs in those days to be able to drink on a Sunday in Wales, and so my father was a member of the conservative club, the Labour club, and the Liberal club, right. <laughs> and whatever I else. I like drinking. So he, he could, you know, if one was closed, the other was open. Uh, but anyway, my local club underneath the Vic Ballroom, which was well, uh, one of the first venues for me to see a live group as well. Um, he played piano and underneath the keyboard of this piano, he had this little electronic keyboard called a clavioline. Oh, yeah, right. I remember that. Yeah. Now, and uh, I saw this and I thought it's great. And he used to lend it to me. And uh, was it 1961 or 62? I can't remember. Uh, Runaway came out, Dal Shannon. And uh, right. you know, <laughs> something like that. The solo went. And that's and, uh, why Blue Weaver is so successful. Look at that. He can he can play Runaway right like that. Oh, yes. That was great. I mean, it was a fantastic record. But I had the clavioline and I could get a sound very, I mean, on the record was a sort of modified clavioline. Right. I could get the basic sound. And, you know, when you ran your finger up the keys, you know, yeah. and... I thought, wow, this is amazing, you know. And then uh, to play in bands in those days, you really needed a sort of a, a portable organ because pianos, a lot of the time, weren't even there. And if they were there, um, it was wor worse than Miss Winifred Atwell. Sure. Or, uh, well, actually, she was brilliant. And <laughs> she used to tune her own piano and everything. So it, I'm doing her injustice. But I mean, the pianos would be so far out of tune sometimes they'd be impossible to play or they, they'd have beer spilt in them and all sorts of stuff um so when i persuaded my father to sign on the dotted line and, and i bought um, a farfisa ah i always wanted a red one but they didn't have a red one in the shop at the time so i had to settle for a gray one ah. but that was great that and that enabled me then to play gigs because it was portable and, um, but actually before I got that, what was great was I worked on the weekends in a music shop and um, Gamlin's in Cardiff and Horace Gamlin, oh, he was amazing. He helped me so much and all the local musicians as well. He used to lend me a Vox Continental and a Vox Amp to go out and do gigs, you know, before I could, have, before I could afford my own organ. Right. Uh, and he helped so many musicians in Cardiff and it was a shame because I heard the shop was closing down after, I don't know, 50 years or something. I think their son had taken it over. But I've just been told it, it, it's been saved. I think they're going to, when they can, they'll open again, nice. which is great. 
But um, anyway, that was the, the early, uh, early influences. And then uh, I, my second organ was a Vox Continental, but a dual manual. Right, nice. And then after that, I could afford a, a Hammond, an L100 and a Leslie, which right. I, had, I had heavily modified. And in fact, on uh, the Hendrix tour with the nice, Keith Emerson had to borrow my organ one night uh, because he damn it, he used to push the daggers in the keys, you know, and I think he broke a couple of keys one night. Did he? But I mean, was he really doing that? Uh, it, as I always thought it was some kind of a clever trick, you know, that he was not really he, he doing it. In between the keys, so it would I hold see. a note down and then continue while he picked it up and shut and rattled the reverb unit in there because it oh. was a reverb in the L1 and that was an L100 so he'd done something I think he miss miscued one night and, and <laughs> didn't sort of get it quite between the keys and right something happened with the organ anyway he borrowed mine and and like I said mine was modified uh, the Leslie had a big 18 inch speaker and four JBL horns going into the top and it really had some power and a lot of top end mm. it was driven by a 200 watt high watt amp Wow. And he loved this organ. In fact, after that, our roadie went to work for Keith and helped um, all the key, helped design all the keyboards and sort things out right. for him. So, but of course, in those days now, you had a roadie and, or two. Oh, yeah, we had. Yeah, it was great. Oh, but my story with Keith was, I said, yeah, you can borrow it, Keith, but please don't use the daggers. He right. said, oh, no, I won't. I promise. <laughs> the, daggers, the daggers. <laughs> <laughs> but luckily, he, he didn't damage my organ. Well, that that that's great in in terms of also you know in those days when they were doing the, they don't do that so much now or it's or since to have tours where you have three or four groups playing together and they get to meet each other and hang out oh, and and, we were and on also, the bus together is Jimi Hendrix, The Move, Pink Floyd, The Nice, Air Apparent, and. Um, yeah. The the lonely ones. I think that was the only band that wasn't really known. Wow. And of course, and Amen Corner. Wow. Now, Jimmy, uh, the way we got on that tour actually was in 1966 or early 67. We were one of the first bands to have a residency in the Speakeasy. This yeah. is Amen Corner and talking right, about. Right. Sure. Yeah. And um, we played a couple of gigs, and then one night, uh, well, when I say night, it was about three o'clock in the morning. I think. And uh, Jimmy hadn't really made it big, but he was known. I mean, all the musicians knew about him and we knew at any moment, he, you know, he was going to be an incredible star. And he sort of wandered up to the stage and, and said, hey, man, you know, can I, can I play? And um, we didn't say no. And oh. uh, Neil went to give uh, his lead guitar and he said, no, man, I want to play bass. So he took the bass off Clive and he put it on, because he was left-handed, he put it on this way around. And right. he was playing like this and like that, you know. And he looked at me and said, what were you going to play? I said, we were just going to play Otis Redding, Can't Turn You Loose. And he looked at the drummer, Dennis, and he went, one, two, three, four. And we all came in. And he came in in the right key, played the bass part. Doo -doo 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 -doo. You know, stayed on for a couple of numbers. Well, <laughs> a couple of months later, um, it was crowded again. And suddenly the audience on the dance floor started partying while we, we were playing and we saw a guitar coming through and then Jimmy appeared and he said, hey man, I, I want to play my guitar tonight. Okay, plug in here. And I said, you know, what are you going to play? And he went this. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, we weren't exactly a band that we, we were used to doing anything like that or jamming, you know, we could get away with a 12 bar or something. But um, luckily, I think he was playing an E, and that was the first thing that we all guessed at. Yes, and, yes. Well, and I think after about ten minutes, we were saved because then uh, the speakeasy had a, a low stage, and there was a very low ceiling above it. And he sort of got carried away and went like this and poked the machine heads through the ceiling and broke one. Yeah. So you know, oh, and it, you know, oh, that was great, Jimmy. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. Terrific. Terrific. Um, <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I, I used to actually, as a as a young teenager, 
kid. I used to go to those clubs in London all the time in the 60s, uh, the speakeasy and the, of course that was harder for me to get in because I was so young, but because uh, they had alcohol there, I believe. Um, yeah. I, I used to go to the marquee and and uh, lots of other places like that. And and it was just so great to, to, to see um, all the people actually playing live and and the jamming thing you know happened once in a while you know yeah, and that was, that was what was so great as an audience i mean you you mentioned that you played with the move did you uh i was friends with carl wayne wonderful guy did you know oh, him? Yeah. yeah we knew them all we were in the same agency together right so we did tours together we did um we did a, a whole summer season with them two shows a night every sunday through right. the summer and um yeah and they were on the bill as well oh but you know jimmy asked uh chas chandler to get us on the bill because he'd seen we were a teeny bopper band and attracting young girls i suppose wow, I well, of course he that didn't was, hate that he got a whole new audience then you know uh-huh of course the move and everybody else was there you know Fantastic, fantastic. So, so in those days, you were mainly using the Vox Continental. Um, by by that time on the Hendrix tour, I got the Hammond. Oh, you had uh, the Hammond, right? Okay. L one hundred and one four seven Leslie, but like I said, that was modified. Right. Now, now it seems that um, by the time you joined the Straubs. Uh, the first time, I might add. Uh, <laughs> um, I never really left. <laughs> no, you never really left. But it seems to me that your function in that band was kind of the arranger in a way, because you were creating for what was essentially, especially in the early days, a kind of an electric folk group. If I'm, it, would I be wrong in saying that? Because it's it's prog rock, but it had a kind of a folky sound. Is that right? I always thought of it as being sort of e electronic folk. Yeah, because but, but, but it seemed that you made it electronic folk. In other words, the sounds that you chose were quite unusual for a group of that nature. Well, I think Rick actually started that. Rick Wakeman, um, because you know I joined the band after he left uh, to join Yes. And Rick really started that by bringing the Hammond organ in right. into the folk band, you know, uh -huh. basically. But and there were some other sounds that that I I've heard on some of those records that you did that were kind of that were were they early synthesizers of some sort or Mellotron I used heavily. Mellotron. I mean, right. the reason behind that was when I joined Storbs, there was you know I I turned the gig down a few times because I thought. Well, first of all, I, I mean, it's a long story, but I, after Straub split up, I, I um, after I left Fairweather, which was the continuation of Amen Corner, right. um, I, I didn't have a gig. And Laurie O'Leary, who was the manager of the Speakeasy at the time, kept saying, oh, you've got to get a gig. And then one day he said, look, um, the Straubs need a keyboard player. And... Um, Rick Wakeman has just left. Well, I wasn't really aware of Rick or the Straubs at that time. And I sort of checked out Rick and I thought, oh God, you know, he's a bit good. He's Can't do anything sense. there. But then I got the name of the band wrong. And I thought Laurie said the thugs. <laughs> I sort of, well, we, we didn't have Google then, but I asked a few people about the thugs. They said, oh no, you don't want to join that band. You should hear it and see what they do on stage, you know. And I thought, oh, okay, that's out. And Laurie kept saying, have you been for an audition yet? I said, no, I don't want to join the Thugs. He said, what do you mean the Thugs? I said, that's the band you want me to. He said, no, they're called Probes. <laughs> oh. Anyway, a week later, a car arrived and I was told to get in. And you didn't argue with, with Laurie and his friends at that time. I got in and was taken to an audition for the Probes. Right. And, uh, and there were keyboards there for you? No, not at that time. I, I, I was, was sat in the room and we just talked and all the band were there and we talked and everything and we talked for a while and then they said to me, um, do you drink beer? You know, and I said, well, I, uh, yeah, I like, I like to drink beer. Oh, yeah, okay. Do you like curries? <laughs> I said, yeah, of course. They said, okay, we're going for a beer and a curry. We went across the road to the White Bear 
which is where the Straubs used to play, or Dave did in the early days. Yeah. And we, I don't know, I, <laughs> I think they were testing me to see how many pints I could, I could handle, but I, I, there's no way I could keep up with any of them, I don't think. <laughs> <laughs> and not at that time. And we had some beers and then we went for a curry. And then we were heading back to Dave's house and I think heard or somebody said, oh God, we haven't heard him play, you know. Yeah. So in Dave's front room we went and there was an old piano in the, in, the, in the corner and they said, play us something. Well, by this time, you know, after a few drinks and a curry, yeah. I, my brain was a little fuddled and I, I couldn't, and for the life of me, I still don't know why I played it, but I, I said, oh, I thought I'd try and impress. I, I know I'm going to screw it up if I try. No, let me try it. I went to... Okay, <laughs> that's it. Well, it is a raggy waltz. <laughs> yeah, it's a raggy waltz. It was a scraggy waltz. <laughs> uh, but um, I played that. And then I joked around about, um, oh, I can't think, sit at my piano the other day. Yeah, you know? yeah. Something like that. And, uh, or, um, uh... anyway, some, something <laughs> stupid, something totally crazy. Yeah. And they said, okay, we start rehearsals, you know, in two weeks' time. And that's um, it. That was it. I had my Hammond and the Leslie and I went along and they said, oh, do you know how to use a Manatron? And I'd used one a few times. Yeah, I'd used one with Amen Corner. There was always one in Decker Studios. And um, I said, yes, you know, and, and that actually saved my life, I think, because um, instead of having to concentrate on anything on technical playing, I concentrated more on sort of the soundscape, on, on an overall sound for the band. Right. And used a lot of Mellotron uh, and a lot of organ. And um, the very first single was called Benedictus. And um, oh, at first I thought it's a nightmare. I saw Dave was playing it on dulcimer. Ah. You know, the, um, he used a sort of open tuning. So all he had to do was uh, hold a position basically right. and move, you know, and play. I, I mean, I don't know much about it, but I thought, oh my God, what can I play over the top of that? So I learned what he was doing on the dulcimer and I, I played it on organ and it was. Which is, nice. uh, I, I mean, it, that, that's all. That was the same as the dulcimer, <clears throat> right? And so I played that on organ. And then when the choruses came in, I put some mellotron in, and then mellotron choir at the end. And, um, and I mean, those days. And those days, you would have been recording eight track. Is that right? Or I'm trying to remember. No, I think it was sixteen then. Was it? Okay, good. Right. What year do you think this was? 70 or something? This was 71. Okay, right. Yeah, 16. I think in 70 with Amen Corner and with Fairweather, we were using 16 track then. I, right, I remember right, right. Yeah. Olympic, I think, was the first, um, first 16 track I think we used. Yeah, but I'm pretty sure we were on to 16 track by then. Yeah, it's it's interesting what you say about the way that you joined the Straubs because um, when I was a kid, I used to do um, interviews for my school newspaper. And one of the things I did, I was probably about 16, 17, and I, I went down to the Marquee Club and I was interviewing John Mayall because he was there. And uh, he had, uh, Nick Taylor had just joined the band. And, and I I said to him, well, how do you choose your musician? You've had so many great musicians in your band. How do you choose them? And he said, oh, I just find out if I can have a beer with them. 
Great. <laughs> it's the same thing, you know. He said, I have a beer, we talk about life, if I like them. He says, you know, musicians get better when they play with me anyway. So I don't care how good they are when they join me. He said, he said Clapton was shocking when he first joined me. He's <laughs> Great. And you know, I just saw him about five years ago, one of his last gigs. He was here in Volkswagen. We have a great music, we have a, it's called the Volkswagen Music Hall. You can Google it and see all the people that play here. Yeah. Aldi Music here often. And um, in fact, it, I think it, it was his birthday yesterday. I think I just sent him a message. And, um, but so many people have played here, but John was incredible. You know, he sets his keyboard and stuff up in the middle of the stage. And he, he says, I just want one light on me and one light on those. Don't change them. Don't switch them on and off. Don't put any colors. Don't do anything. Just right. leave it like that. You know, I suppose it comes from his blues days, you know, sure. where there weren't any lights. There was only just one, you know, whatever was above on, on the stage. And um, and he, yeah. he was amazing. And, and, that, and that was true. And I, I, as a kid, you know, I was a little bit too young to go to these clubs, but I, I still went. And uh, one of the things that was so great about it was being able to sit you know, in the second row or something, and and see what all the musicians were doing and how they were fiddling with their equipment. And, you know, it was all a very uh, organic kind of human. You had a lot of communication with the audience. And that, it's a shame that that sort of has left in the... I mean, you were so close. If somebody in the audience looked up and said something to you, you you, you know, you could respond to it. Right. And, um, and what did I say something before that? Yes, what made me think of it was when I was saying I copied the part uh, of the dulcimer, yeah. which was also basically the, the melody line as well. And what I've realized is that throughout my career, because I'm not a great keyboard player, I'm not a great technician, um, well, I, well. I, I do, you know, what I think is necessary for the for the music and for the track and and whatever rather than you know it's not possible for me to do solos like Keith Emerson or Rick Wakeman or stand there and be a soloist I like to integrate into the band uh, and try and make it the band sound great yeah. rather than not thinking about myself you know uh, and I'm always yeah. appreciative when people like what I did but what I've realized is <laughs> That a lot of the time I'm playing the vocal line or what turns out to be the vocal line or playing around it or reinforcing the vocal line in some way. And in practically everything I do, that's somewhere along the line that that's in there. You know. Yes, and I think that, that you've, you see where that's necessary. I mean, obviously, sometimes if you have a certain type of singer you don't want to get in their way because they're they're the type of singer who does does things with the vocal line where they need the freedom but where you have i mean where i i think you made those those records sound great those those early strobs records sound great is because you doubled the the melody line and it helped the vocals because the sound of the vocals was it was quite strident in a way, I guess you'd call Dave it. Dave has a very unique voice. You either love it or you hate it. Yes, know? that's right. But I mean, it's it it's not it's not one of those voices that you would say is is full of you know warm tone. It's it's a it's a it's a strong man man's voice. And so you know, I think you doing that uh, helped the music enormously. And and uh, and I think it's a very very special quality to know what is right for the track i mean again coming from the world of arranging that's what an arranger does he do. makes the track sound great and where it's necessary to put in something that's additional do it where it's not support the singer always support the singer i mean barry manilow said to me always support the lyric that's what you're doing you're supporting the lyric which is, I thought, an interesting angle on it. Yeah, that's another angle, yes. Yeah. yeah. Well, because, there, that, yeah. Yeah, if you remember the melody, and then the, the, then you, you, you focus on the lyric because the melody becomes, um, it's sort of embedded there. So then, you know, I, I'm always 
I can never remember lyrics, you know, because <laughs> I'm so focused on the melody. <clears throat> True, but but as Barry said to me, uh, he said, you know, a lot of people actually don't hear music. They don't know music. They don't know one note from another, but they still love to listen to music because of the stories that it tells them. Exactly. And yeah. because of the and, the and so the words are very, very important. And if you can express those words in your in your playing and your choice of sounds and then then you're on a winner. Um, yeah, I think I most probably pick up on key words of the song to get the overall feel of it. Sure. Focus on the whole thing. Yeah. And, yeah. Uh, so actually, a lot of the stuff though with the Bee Gees, um, I had to play while there weren't very many lyrics. There would all, I mean, generally, what came out of Barry's mouth, first of all, would end up. Uh, as part of the song, but a lot of the time it would be uh, in the morning, da 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 da, da so breeze. You know, it would be you know things like that. You know, yeah, so I'd be yeah. trying to follow the. So I'd be building the song actually even before the lyric was there. Yes, yes, I, I believe that was their technique that they were there. They had songs in various degrees of having been finished before when they got in the studio and then that would that would influence them finishing the songs of course that period of your career pre pretty much everybody in the world i would say knows what you did on those records because it's so prominent and it's so it was so unique at the time i don't well, think every anyone... musician i think but i don't think the general public no i actually i think the general public when they hear those bass lines and they hear those particular kinds of sounds that you you kind of i mean for me you created what was what i would call hip disco you know the hip side of disco you guys and you and chic pretty much created all of the tropes and sounds of of hip but, disco but that came the, the the word disco came later we never considered yes I, that I mean, my, my brief was when I joined the Bee Gees is they have to find a new direction. They tried everything and they weren't doing so well. They weren't filling theaters anymore. Uh, even the, the album that they did, which was, was fantastic songs, fantastic production, it didn't sell. And that was Mr. Natural, the album before right. I joined. Mm -hmm. So they were really, you know, they, they had a problem. And so the brief was, you know, to find a new direction. And, um, but of course, once I got to, uh, got with them in the beginning, the first two or three things we did were, were ballads, you know, and I think that was okay. We were just getting into it and getting to know, you know, know each other. And I was getting yeah. to, to play a little with with Barry and with Robin and Morrison. And we were just feeling our way, you know. And um, well, but then of course, um, a track called Wind of Change came along because we we were looking, I was thinking, what can we do? I mean, Dennis had already sussed it out. And when he was speaking with Barry on a train in Tokyo and said, look, we're not doing too well. Um, the orchestra's old hat now and everything. What we need to do is get a unit together. And Barry thought that was a good idea. And he said, look, let's get, you know, the six of us, Morris can play bass, there's Alan on guitar, I'm on drums. He said, I know this guy um, that I played with years ago in, in Amen Corner, and I think I'd already met them before. And he, you know, he, he said, let's get a unit together like that and go into the studio and just try and create something as a band rather than thinking of, uh, you know, like these guys and then an orchestra is going on or whatever. Mm -hmm. And um, so, that that was the brief and I, I was thinking then I took it on um, the stage further and was thinking well people really want to dance now you know I was looking at the the stuff in the charts and the first thing we came up with that changed the direction was actually called wind of change which it really was you know and um it was like a sort of soul ballad if you listen to the main course album you can see and I put a synthesizer on it just playing just playing the offbeat of, of the root notes all the way through. So it had a pulse in it and some Hammond organ and things. And that was it. And we thought, wow, 
that the Bee Gees, they've turned into a Solvenge, you know. And then, of course, the, the track after that, which really turned things around, was Drive Talking. And mm -hmm. the, the rhythm for that came about uh, driving over um, a bridge in Miami. Barry said, listen to the rhythm that the tires make on the bridge as we drive over this. And um, we went over and the rhythm was what he plays on guitar in the beginning of the track, which is... Right. Which is, and that's the rhythm of the, that the car made as it was going over this, you know, the metal bridges that open up in Miami to uh, let the ships through. And um, so we got into the studio and I think that night um, we were cutting another track. I can't remember which one. And maybe Barry had been thinking about this rhythm and thinking about this, this track. We finished what we were doing about three, four o'clock in the morning. And Barry said, remember that rhythm I played the other night? He said, I, I've got a bit of a melody, a bit of a song going over this. You know, and he said, Let, let's try and put a demo down. Let's let's put something down. So we went into the studio. It's just Barry on, on guitar, on rhythm guitar, Alan Kendall on lead, Dennis Bryan on drums, and myself on the Fender. And uh, Barry sort of sang us the idea through. And um, Alan picked up just little, you know, picked up the just... You know, it, it's in the key of C, so he was playing a C, you know, just little things over the top. And um, Dennis got a, a beat going. And then Barry had already sang me the song. So I had an, I had an idea of the, the chords. I'd worked out chords on there. But there again, I was playing the melody that he'd sang me because I couldn't think of anything else to play at the time. Because right. no one to do. So it goes. Uh, That's the melody line, you know. So I'm playing that and then it, and it's just simple. So we get that far and then we carried on playing and he said okay there's a there's like a break here and he started singing the riff which is right Dennis completely sort of looked at me and Alan did as well and he th we didn't know what to do because there's because there, there's an um what is it is there a bar of five four in there or is it bar of two four I can't remember yeah it's, it's 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 a com compound rhythm that's fine it's a compound rhythm in there and Dennis was sitting there and playing and it, so he just carried on playing didn't know what was going to happen but of course it turned around and as soon as we went back in the it's back, it's back around on itself. So it was a perfect thing to do, was to play straight through the whole thing. Right, exactly. Uh, yeah, I, that, I think it's a bar of seven, isn't it? And then he seven. played straight through it, which was great. And um, he, and Barry was singing, la, 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 he was singing that. And I picked up and I played the riff on the piano. And then, uh, we thought, oh, that's great. We'll, we'll go into the studio and have a listen and see what it's like. We managed to get, I think, either the first or the second time we got all the way through it. We had a structure there. And uh, we, and then I said, no, we've got to put a bass on, get Morris, you know. I said, we've got to, you know, we've got to have a bass on this. I said, this is, you know, it, 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 it's the only way we're really going to feel it is to have a bass on it. <clears throat> and uh, Tom Rodi said, oh, no, Morris went home a couple of hours ago. So sitting in the studio was an ARP 2600 synthesizer that I'd been playing around and uh, that I'd already put on Wind of Change. Yeah. And I thought, oh, hold on, guys. Let me see if I can get a, 
a rough base powder, you know, I'll put on there, I'll just put a basic, a basic line on there. So, I mean, Morris was playing Rickenbacker at the time and I was fiddling around trying to get it sounding like a bass guitar, but I couldn't. So I sort of gave up on that and, and kept it sounding a little bit electronic, a little bit of resonance in there and filter. And, uh, and I just played a basic, I, in fact, actually, I've got I've got the demo. I've got the original bass part I played, which was just similar, you know. I mean, that happens. I don't think it happened all the time. I think I was doing pretty basic things. And um, but I managed to get through the track with a bass part on there. We got home. I remember it was about seven o'clock in the morning. And we're in 461 Ocean Boulevard, looking out to the sea. And we got back and, you know, obviously we're up, you, you know, you know what it's like at the end of a session, you're really high. So bottle of wine open, um, a little smoke, you know, we're sitting there and we put this cassette on and we sat back with a glass of wine and a joint and sort of listen. Um, we, we couldn't believe it. We said, that's it. That's it. That, this is the turning point. This is this is something really special, you know. And the way Barry had sung it as well, you know, had as you know, a added another uh, flavor to the track uh, that was yeah. different from normal VG's thing. Now I noticed that when you're talking about doing this, there's no mention of Arif. Now, did Arif not? He wasn't around. Arif had left after we'd finished this. You know, this was an idea that came just by talking afterwards. Oh, right. yeah, let's go and get this demo down, and we can play it to Arif tomorrow. You know. Yes. That was the whole idea. You know. Yeah. For my yeah. listeners, I Arif Martin, the, the oh, great. Arif uh, Martin was producing. I mean, this this is it. Arif never. Um, he he just left us alone. Uh, this was an amazing thing in this, you know, we were obviously getting feedback from him, but he wouldn't have to say very much. I mean, what he did do was, if we'd been going for a long time, uh, he would stop and say, hey, guys, you know, 30 minutes ago, you had it. That's what it was. And we have to think. And he'd remember what the what the the, the, the magic thing that happened 30 minutes ago was. And he put us back on track again and we'd do it. And this was great, but he always left us to sit and work it out for ourselves. He never came in and said, no, that, you know, you, you, you've got to, you know, it should be like this. Or he right. never gave us any um, sort of direction or anything like that. He just let us see where we were going, you know, and see yeah. if we could work it out. Well, um, in, in my two interviews that I, in my two-part interview with, with Arif, he talks about doing this and working with you guys on that and it's it's very interesting and he says you know i i didn't really direct i just enabled you know and and that was that was an interesting thing but he also tells a story and maybe you can add some background to this was that the vocal sound that the the uh the brothers got he he had apparently said to them well you know if you want to get a different sound, maybe you should think about doing that kind of thing of the soul groups, the black soul groups, that high falsetto thing. Maybe try something like that, or maybe try some kind of vocal harmony thing that that's that's. And and they went away, and and he Arif says he wasn't expecting them to go for that, you know, very strong full voice you know, sound that they suddenly got, but it was a new sound. And it wasn't that he told them to get that sound. He just told them to do something and they come up, came up with that. Yeah, but that wasn't the falsetto at the time. That was just the, the high, you know, the soul, like you say, the soul type voices. Yes, yes. Put in the back I'll tell you the story of the falsetto, uh, which came about on, on Nights on Broadway, which right. we call the next track. Um, but, um, Arif put them right when they were writing the lyrics about jive talking. They didn't realize they, uh, that, you know, he put, he said, hey, man, this is street talk. This is don't give me all that jive, you know. He put them in that direction. Now write a lyric. You know, your lyric has to be like street talk or, or, or right. something. Like that. You know, he put them in, in the right direction for jive. You know? They didn't understand about that then. Yes. 
And, um, but the next thing was the following night, of course, we, we knew that it was the synth bass that was making the whole thing sound different and putting the weight in the track. And so they, you know, everybody agreed that, um, that I should put a synth bass on it. And I think we arrived in the studio about six o'clock. Oh, and before that, I said to Barry, I said, but you know, Morris is the bass player. Who's going to tell him? He said, you. I said, no, you're his brother. You tell him. <laughs> and, uh, Very anyway, brave of him. Yeah. Anyway, um, Robin and Morris used to come down to the studio sometimes a bit later if we didn't need anything. And um, I, we got to the studio about six o'clock. And I said to the guys, okay, we're in Studio B in Criteria. Now, Studio B, the monitors were set in the wall. It was just a flat wall at the back. And they were inside. You couldn't see them. It was just a whole grill. So I set the ARP 2600 up right against the wall uh, with the little keyboard there. And I said, just give me the drums, you know, turn the kick up. <laughs> Let me work on this part, you know. And... Um, and I, I got in there and I thought I'll make it more electronic sounding. So I made it again, more resonance, more filter on there. Uh, a lot of, you know, a lot of bottom end in there. And Carl was great. He got the, I mean, we, we were working on 16 track then actually, uh, which was great. 16 track at 15 IPS. And, um, and that's why um, that album and Jive Talking has that great bottom end as well. And um, anyway, I'm playing away and I'm working on this bass part and uh, Dennis and Barry are throwing a few ideas and, and again, I'm playing, no, that, that was great what you did there, let's do that, you know. So I'm working it out and I've got about halfway through the song we played and suddenly the door opens and Morris walks in. And, oh, no, no. Morris, he said, oh man, oh, that sounds fantastic. That's, that's so great. Oh, this is it, you know, we've got it. And I said, oh, you know, <laughs> thanks, Morris. And I said, look, when I finished, I said, this is in C. I said, we can, we can put some extra weight on the bottom end. I said, when, when I finished, you're going to tune your E string down to C. Nice. And you play the downbeat. That's all you have to do. You know, boom, Great. On there. And so... So he's on there on the bass as well. Great idea. It's not only diplomatic, but also sounded great. It, it worked. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, I think also the thing is, let's face it, the brothers had been complete professionals from a very, very early age. So it was very <laughs> unlikely. I would have found it very unlikely that that any of them would have gotten in the way of making a good record because of ego i mean it just didn't i mean it they well I, I think it did happen in the past they had the, they had a few differences but i think by then and everybody knew that this had to happen this right. album right well um, um but like you say you know he, he recognized that 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 was you know the right thing the right way to go Right. And in fact, it was hard for me to get him to play bass after that. Every time, oh, no, you've got to put synth on. And of course, the next track was Nights on Broadway, exactly. which also was synth bass. You know. Yes, yes. Well, I mean, you know, it's not just me complimenting you, but you really did by doing that and other sounds that you chose. You helped create that magical uh, and incredibly successful uh, sound, which, you know, as I, I called it earlier, hip disco, but it was, it's the most sophisticated uh, version of, of dance music that, that was around at the time and changed the way everybody else was thinking. Well, I got to thank Stevie Wonder as well, you know. I mean, if you listen, you know, um, my influence is there. You know, right. when Barry sang the riff, I said, oh, we've got, I've got to put synth on that riff. You know, and at the time I was li listening to Living in the City. Sure. You know. Yeah. Which is, well, it's not, but, you know, I, the, sure. the, the idea is there. Sure. And I thought, like, we've got to put a big synth riff in this song. Yeah. So I, uh, I did three tracks of synth and we put them all 
and we mixed them all down to one track. And then I said to Carl, that's still not enough. I said, put a delay, put a very short delay and let's spread it out into stereo. Yeah. So if you listen, the, the one side is actually a delay of the other. Right. And I added a fifth, I, I, I did octaves. And then, I, I had to tune the oscillators to an octave apart. So, and then, and I did one with a high, with, so it was over, uh, over two octaves, but then I did one pass and I added a fifth in there. So it's, um, you know, it's like, uh, right. Right. That's just in there a little bit, you, you know, it just added a little bit to the, to the sound. Yeah, that's an arranging technique that I, I use in writing for horns and strings. I use that particular technique. In fact, in fact, I also use, I, I, I keep going, you know, I do fifth and then another fifth up here and, you know, and it just cool. adds, it adds resonance to it, to things, but, but it has to be softer, you know, but it's, it's, that's what I mean by saying that you're thinking completely like an arranger uh and and that's the thing about your particular keyboard thing is that you're enhancing well, because, the track. Also because i don't sing so much i'm playing the parts on the piano as well and um actually when we get towards the end of the interview i'd like to play you something which it demonstrates exactly that where i've written a song but actually in the in the playing it on the piano, I'm playing the vocal part. I'm also playing what I thought of the string arrangement as well. Lay it on me now. Let's let's hear it. Oh, well, well the story behind it is quite sad. Um, you know, of course, Andy was the first brother, the youngest one uh, to die. And then Morris and then Robin. Well, after Robin died, I mean, I was in Spain and I, I, well, I couldn't believe it at any point, you know, any of any, them, I never, you know, it was, they were three brothers, they sang, we performed, and I always had this vision that one day we would get back together and I would be able to perform them, which I actually did on Barry's, I think it was his 50th birthday. I was fortunate enough to, to be there at a party that Robert had thrown in London for them, and there was a little Wurlitzer, uh, there was a band playing, and they had a Wurlitzer piano. And of course, everybody said, oh, the Bee Gees, you've got to play. And Barry and the guys looked at me and said, OK, you've got to play piano. So I, I was playing this world. So, and um, so I did actually get to play with the three of them, you know, you know, oh, God, how many years after? Sure. Um, after I left, I forget. Right. Uh, but anyway, but it was so sad after Robin died, because I thought there's no way now, you know, that's it. And I, I read... Uh, somewhere where they said, now Barry's the only one, you know. And I sat down at the piano and I immediately had a title in my mind, uh, Now We Are One. You know? Right. And uh, I sat down and it came to me very, very quickly. Um, I love playing in E flat. The songs I wrote with Barry are in E flat or F. I knew he, I know he could sing around the E flat, and I just love playing in that key. You know, uh, how deep is your love is in E flat as well. Nice. So I was working around. Now, this is what I came up with. Um, I came up with a lyric as well. I sat down, and I'm not a lyricist, but um, the lyric I came up with was, um, "I'm standing on this stage alone, uh, another spirit not yet flown." But when I look around, I see all my brothers standing next to me and singing harmony. And when that final song is sung, then we are one. Great. I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. And and that melody was. Um,
Beautiful, man. But you see where I'm talking about, like there's an arrangement in there. I'm playing the melody line. I'm standing on the street them to sing one that holds out the one while it while the orchestration goes and then a little motif that you recognize so I had to I had to finish it, you know? I had to think of another part around it to, to make it into a song. I couldn't, I still to this day can't top the lyric. I can't find another, I can't find the other verses. And there's only one person that can do that and that's Barry, you know? But I came up with a really unique idea. The first and second verses are different to, the, to what I just played. They're the same structure, but you know, the. That verse goes, and now the, the first verse goes. That's all the same then, but I, I don't know how I came up with it. So the first part of the verse is is a different is it, it, it I mean it, it's just a little bit different, and um, the chord structure, even though it's the same. But then I came up with a middle eight, so it goes. Um, first. I mean, it's all rubato as well. I, I tried to do it online and I thought, no, it doesn't work. It has to be done live with, with the singer. Yeah. I do also want to ask you about the new Straub's record, but I'm wondering, is it finished? Yeah, it's out. It, it, it's out. it got into the charts on, 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 uh, on um, it, it got straight into the folk charts the actual um, physical, you know, CDs and albums chart. Right. Uh, it went in at number eleven, I think, or ten. Um, that was on on pre on pre-orders. You know. Right. It came about because yet again um, we had another anniversary, a big anniversary, Straub's fiftieth anniversary, and that was held in Lakewood, New Jersey, because the mayor there. Uh, is a big Straub's fan, and they have this beautiful old theater there, the Strand. And he gave us the theater for a week, and um, uh, it was all planned. Uh, fans came in from all around the world. He had a hotel booked out there so the fans could book. And we held the concerts over three days. And uh, that was the Thursday, Friday, and Saturday all day from like 11 in the morning through till 11 at night, music. We got as many of the old strobes together as we could and guests. Um, and it was just an amazing week. I mean, it was it was really good. We didn't have much time for rehearsals and uh, we had an orchestra and we had a, a United Nations choir as well. And uh, Tony Visconti, uh did a new arrangement well he 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 did um oh how she changed again and oh it was wonderful fantastic 
Um, so we recorded and videoed that whole, uh, those three days. And um, we did a live presentation of Grave New World as well. And um, with a commentary, David written some words. And so it, it, it's a whole structure. It, um, there's an introduction by the speaker, which was Wesley Stace. And, um, and then as we finish each number, he does another, um, another introduction or a little. Yes, yes. It's a story that, that, it, that the whole album moves through. And I think I started mixing around about August, something like that. I started mixing the live album or sorting right. it out. Did you mix it all there at home? Yeah, I was doing everything at home here in, the, in you know, here. In front of me, I've got um, a little SSL nucleus board, which is a controller, basically. Nice. And a nice big 49-inch curved screen that split in into two sections. I did have two Mac monitors before, but believe me, if you can do it, this is, oh, it's amazing. Yeah. It's so restful and the... Uh, it, it, it's really, it really works out well. Great. And then um, I'm using a new door, as they call it now, which is always be a sequencer to me. But um, uh, I started off in Pro Tools with the live album, but since then I've done everything in, in a new one by UAD called Luna, which for me is the best user interface. It's set out like an analog board. And it just sounds so great. You have, it doesn't have a lot of bell, bells and whistles like, like Pro Tools and like Logic and Cubase and everything, because they only brought it out during lockdown. They thought, well, you know, people need something new. Let's put this out now. And they apologize saying, look, it's not at a great stage, but it's fairly stable right. and we'll let you use it, you know, yeah. because it, it comes free if you have a UAD interface. Sounds great. And so I was using that. And um, while I was mixing the live album, Dave Cousins phoned me and said, look, Cherry Red have said they want a live studio album. Uh, they want a studio album. And can you, will you stop mixing the uh, live album and produce an album for us? Nice. And I said, yeah, of course. You know, it's great. It's like, you know, a dream come true. Yeah. <laughs> I can actually That's get lost to do something instead of co-producing or whatever. Yeah. Just the, you know, you we need one person in charge. Everybody's going to be set. I'll be writing out the songs in the first place, and um, I will do a basic template for you. Uh, we'll, and then he said, "Tell me what I have to do," and I said, "Well, work out a BPM for the song, and put a click track down." Yeah. I said, play your acoustic and then put your vocal on. Right. I said, the basic ideas and send me that. And right. then I can put it together. I said, don't worry about going off the click track or anything. I said, it's there as a guide for me to put things together more than for you to actually play right. to a section. Right. And um, I said, but it will help you if you can keep in time. <laughs> but um, Anyway, and that's what we did, you know. And he said, "Oh, you know, what gear can I have?" And so he, he got an. He had a Neumann mic already, which is not the not an eighty-seven or anything. It's what I have one here. Actually, it's the same. I forget the model number, but it's about six hundred and fifty, six hundred and eighty pounds. Yeah. And it's and it's really nice actually. I really like it. It's great. So we had that set up, and I said, "I've got a Zoom four track." I said that I love using. I said, he said, oh, a Zoom, okay, I'll get that. So he got himself a Zoom HD4 and um, learned how to use it. And uh, he would uh, set up a click track on, on his iPad into the headphones. He'd set up a vocal mic and he would plug his guitar in to the inputs on the Zoom. Nice and send me the individual files from that. Fantastic. Just to clarify for the audience, so he laid down his guitar and vocals and the, to the click, and then you built the track around him, and then the the other, well, you, you were 
then able well, to redo vocals and and add other instruments, etc. Well, what would happen generally is he'd send it to me and he said, what do you think? Sometimes I'd say, oh, it's too slow or it's too fast. Let's change the BPM and he'd do it again. And then I'd say, look, send it to Chaz Kronk. Then he would send to Chaz Kronk and he would uh, sort of sort out Dave's guitar yeah. and then he would put the bass down and then send it to me. So we had the structure of a song. So we had a little bit of a problem in the beginning uh, because Tony Fernandez was in Portugal and didn't have a drum kit. So I couldn't put down drums straight away. So sometimes I would just put down a guide drum track. To just I would try and find a feel that I thought was <clears throat> right. So we could just progress with that while we sorted out a drum kit for Tony. In the end, we actually had to send in rolling pads. You know, it was a pretty decent kit that uh, David found in England and got sent over to Portugal. But we had to press on in the meantime, and then we'd send it uh, to Dave Lambert. He'd put a lead guitar on. Um, maybe uh, if Dave then would try and get a, a more or less finished vocal or a really good guide, and right. the guys would put harmonies on if it was necessary, or Dave would put a harmony on as well. And we just noted the track by them have it everybody would have a copy of it and they would add their parts and then send yeah, it all yeah. back to me right would sit there and have to decide what would be used what what didn't it sounds fantastic and and the way that you worked sounds very sensible yeah. so blue what's all this about rap music <laughs> well uh, about three years ago i was walking out of my house one day and this young guy came up to me and said oh excuse me um, you're Blue Weaver. And I said, yeah. He said, do you know, he said, uh, I'm a big fan uh, of the Bee Gees. He said, but I want to learn how to make music. I want to learn how to produce. I want to learn what you do to make music in the studio. He said, uh, I'm an IT specialist by the day. He said, but I have a record deck. And he said, I have um, uh, lots of, he collected Akai MPC uh, machines. And he said, what I do is I sample vinyl records. He said, I take like a kick here and a snare and a little bit of something here, and I create beats, he said, from them. And he said, um, I'd love for you to hear some. But he said, what I'd love to do is just sit in your room and watch and see how you, you know, what you do and see what equipment you use and things, you know. So anyway, I, I forgot about it. And I was working uh, then on tour for you know six months of the year, most of the time, so I didn't have anything. But he sort of persisted over the years, calling me and everything. And then one day I thought, okay, yeah, come on, coming in. And I, he sat down and he brought me his beats and started playing me what he does. And I thought, gosh, this is like I used to do in the Fairlight, you know, <laughs> pick up bits of samples and create tracks and everything. But he was creating grooves. And I thought, wow, this is really interesting. And then he said, well, I've got contact with these rappers and everything. He said, can we do a track? He said, I've got um, guys in Philadelphia. He said they were, the, the, they were really well known. He said, um, 10 years ago, they were the youngest rappers on the scene. They were called the youngsters. And anyway, he said, I want to get them back in into the scene. He said, they've got so many followers, but he said, we'll do a track. And he gave me this beat and I added some, in fact, actually I put big string sections on it and uh, which was unheard of. The guy, the guy said, oh, you can't do that. I said, well, I've done it, take a listen. And in fact, they liked it in the end and we put it out and we put it on Spotify and all the media, and um, we and it was a big success. They're all their old fans were buying it. Um, we thought, and this young guy, Nasib, he's 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 called. He's amazing. He said, "Look, this money we're making from Spotify, we're going to press vinyl." He said, "And put vinyl and sell vinyl." I said, "What?" He said, yeah, we're going to make a vinyl single. So I did another mix and called it, and the song was called Be Great. So I made a B-side of it and called it Be Great Too. And it's by the, the youngsters. You can check it out on Spotify. Yeah. And in fact, I like Be Great Too, because by this time I'd got into it and I could do a bit more than 
in the beginning. It was a couple of months late. So we pressed vinyl. Um, we made money on Spotify. Fantastic. Paid for 500 vinyl pressings wow. that cost seven euros each. The first ones we sold 100 to a shop in Berlin for 15 euros each. Nice. We're paying 25 euros individuals. Uh, and another couple of other shops. Uh, Nasib got on to all these, all the, the vinyl shops in Germany and America and everywhere. And we, we got rid of all of them, you know. Wow. Uh, Blue, I can't tell you how happy I am that you've taken the time to do this. Great stories, great stuff. Can only say thanks and Blue forever. And uh, thank you so much for doing this. You're welcome. Thank you.